Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Namihi nui and welcome to Our Changing World from RNZ National. When the magnitude 7.8 Kaikoura earthquake happened, it set off tens of thousands of landslips, ripping Marlborough apart and sending many tonnes of rock and sediment into the valleys and rivers. Now it's easy to see all of this on land, but because it's out of sight, we forget that the same sort of thing was happening out at sea, which is also where much of that rock and mud is now ending up. So this is a story about what happened on the seafloor around Kaikoura, not the intertidal, which we know was shunted up by one to nearly six metres, but in the deep ocean. The deep ocean comes very close to Kaikoura in the form of a canyon, which is of course why the sperm whales can be seen so close to shore. Now there are about a hundred or so ocean canyons around New Zealand, and although the Kaikoura Canyon is special, Niwa geologist Joshua Mountjoy says it's just part of a more massive canyon complex on the northeast coast of the South Island. Almost directly off Banks Peninsula, just slightly to the northeast, there's the first of the submarine canyons, and that's the Pegasus and O'Kane's Canyon. As you move all the way up towards Cook Strait, there's about 10 major canyons altogether, um, and all of these feed down across the continental slope into the Hikarangi Channel. Some of the key ones of these are the Kaikota Canyon, which comes to within a very short distance of the coast, um, less than a kilometre, and the Cook Strait Canyon, which encroaches right into Cook Strait itself and again comes right up next to the coast in Wairapa. Well, focusing on the Kaikoura Canyon, so that's just on the south side of the Kaikoura Peninsula, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. It comes right in close to Goose Bay, which is just between Kaikoura and Oaro. And, yeah, it comes to within a kilometre of the coast and... Then the shelf is only about 30 metres water depth, which is really shallow for a canyon rim. Then it drops down to about 600 quite rapidly, and then it just continues to deepen. And it, where the um, mouth of the canyon is, it's over 2,000 metres deep. So that would be the whole canyon system. And then when it um, continues down into the channel and merges with the Cook Strait Canyon, at that point it's about 2.7 kilometres deep. So how long is the Kaikoura Canyon? So it's about 50 kilometres long from the head out to the mouth where it starts to join with other canyons. So this would look really dramatic if you stripped away all that water. You'd be looking at something that's a bit like a Grand Canyon. Absolutely, yeah. They really have the appearance of um, terrestrial canyons and these sort of sculptured, eroded gullies um, around the flanks of them and the heads encroach into um, the continental shelf areas and they look very much like they've been eroded by rivers and that type of um, formation, which is really unsurprising because the processes that erode them are very much like riverine processes. They just don't have um, stuff flowing down them continuously like a river might, but every now and then you have this flow of sediment entrained in the fluids and that's what creates these formations. These occasional very large sediment flows are known as turbidity currents. They're a kind of density flow that starts when mud and sand on the continental shelf are loosened by something like an earthquake. The turbid water then rushes down the canyon slope like an avalanche, picking up more sediment and increasing in speed as it flows. 
Phil Barnes from Niwa says these flows move at about 5 to 10 metres a second, which is about 20 to 30 kilometres an hour. The resulting layer of sediment on the seafloor is very distinctive and known as a turbidite. So where is all the sediment that is feeding the Kaikoura Canyon coming from? How Kaikoura works uh, mostly is that there's a lot of coarse sediment, so sand and fine gravel, on the shelf between Banks Peninsula and Kaikoura itself. And this is um, moved during big storms and um, by the dominant northward flowing current. So that sediment moves its way along the shelf and there's a very vigorous marine environment. In Kaikoura, we know that there's a lot of sand on the shelf itself, so that's the sort of 30 metre um, water depth plateau at the head of the canyon. And that gets moved off into the canyon periodically. And so again, this is the big storm. So a big southerly storm will come through and you've got eight metre waves and things like that. And that's totally able to move sand and fine gravel on the shelf. Um, and because the currents are flowing north and because the canyon comes right into the coast, it just um, intercepts all of that sediment and it gets funnelled off down into there. We were out there a little while ago and trying to understand whether or not there was a lot of sand building up at the head of Kaikoura Canyon. And we thought we might find this big deposit of sand, but what we found was that on the shelf it was all sandy and, and we were trying to take core samples and we couldn't core in that. But as we moved towards the canyon rim, it all became muddy and silty and we could certainly core that. And then we know from a little bit further down into the canyon it's also really muddy. And so it's, um, it was a bit of a puzzle as to where the sand is, but what we think is that it gets moved into the canyon and it sort of gets to the mid-canyon area and it's kind of like a staging point and so you have this big build-up of sand in there and then periodically that gets sort of cleared out and um, funnels down to the lower part of the canyon. So earthquakes one of those things that can clear it out? Yeah, we think that earthquakes are the sort of major driver of um, big landscape changing events and so we've seen that on land in Kaikoura. There's been heaps of landslides and things like that have just totally changed how the landscape is behaving and it will take a long time for that to move out and we think the same thing happens in submarine canyons. So you get a big earthquake like this and it just releases a whole lot of sediment that then floods down and, and you can record this down in the Hikarangi Channel and we know that over the last thousand years or so there's been several events that have come out of the canyons and, and flowed down into the channel. It's worth pointing out that the whole Hikarangi Channel is about 2,000 kilometres long, so it's really long. It goes all the way up the east coast of the North Island, then turns right at about Gisborne and heads east. And so this has been formed by these type of flows. Um, we don't know too much about the very um, far end of it, but we do know that for at least the first half of it, that this is happening in the modern time. So earthquakes like this, Kaikoura earthquake, can move sediment right down through that channel um, and right along the seafloor for hundreds of kilometres. So some of the work you're doing at the moment is to figure out the timing for that? Yeah, that's right. So we've got a number of sediment cores that we can get ages from, and so we're looking at um, how often turbidites um, come down. And so a turbidite is a deposit of um, coarse material or sand and mud that um, flows down, and it's the like the river type thing, and then it gets deposited um, on the floor of the canyon, and we can core that and sample that and get an idea of when these events have happened. Um, we've got a core from the middle part of Kaikoura Canyon that over about a thousand years has had about 15 of these come down through it, so quite often. And in the lower part of Kaikoura Canyon, it's quite amazing. It's all um, dominated by gravel, and so we're talking sort of 
well, we know that we've sampled egg-sized pieces of gravel, and there's probably much bigger. There's this huge um, bed form, so like hundreds of metre wavelength um, sediment waves in the bottom of the canyon, and they appear to be all made of gravel. And one of those we know um, there's been a, like a gravel flow event in the last couple of hundred years. So these things are moving around um, as well. So it's a lot of energy to do that kind of thing. When the Kaikoura earthquake occurred, the Niwa research vessel Tangaroa was already at sea, studying the Hikarangi subduction margin off East Cape. This is where the Pacific tectonic plate dives beneath the North Island, which lies on the Australian plate. It's considered to be New Zealand's largest earthquake and tsunami hazard. Phil Barnes from Niwa was part of the team collecting sediment cores from the seafloor to look for evidence of the turbidites, or sediment flows, that Joshua was talking about. They plan to date these past or paleoturbidites so they can work out how often large earthquakes have happened, where they occurred, how big they were and so on. Phil Barnes said they'd already collected 61 cores, each containing plentiful evidence of past turbidites, when they diverted the ship to Kaikoura. They were keen to see if they could find evidence of a new turbidite, one that might have been triggered by the recent shaking. As they were en route to Kaikoura, they stopped a couple of times to take cores, using a device called a multicorer. Several of the cores were in the Hikarangi channel itself, and one was out of the channel but on the nearby seafloor, on what you might think of as the riverbank. As Phil explained to a media briefing held the day the ship got back to Wellington, they were stunned by what they found. So we're actually sampling right on the seabed, and we're looking for, was there a turbulent in place last week? And what would its characteristics be and how would we recognise that? And there was. And lo and behold, there's a sea of mud down there. So there's still mud and clay falling out of the water column as we speak, and that'll probably go on for days to weeks, months. But we've got about 10 centimetres of uh, sand and, and silty sediment uh, already on the seafloor now. And that is about 300 kilometres away from where it must have been sourced from down here in these southern um, catchment areas. So we can't say where the landslides occurred, but we certainly know that uh, large sediment failures occurred in this area and in place sediment as far as 300 kilometres and possibly further. Phil says that turbidity currents on this scale, travelling hundreds of kilometres from the source, are enormous events. Flows of this magnitude are thought to have as much as four or five hundred metres of thickness in the water column. The upper parts of that will just be very diluted, moving water, much more concentrated in the, down towards the seafloor. So there'll be a lot more energy at the, at the seabed. But we know that it's measured in hundreds of metres because the Hikarangi Channel, for example, has a levee on it, like a river does on land. So the main part of the flow, which is the faster moving part carrying all of the sand and gravelly material well just like a river breaks its banks and its levees and spills muddier water over onto the, the, the basin plain so too do these um, turbidity current systems, they break out of the channel, they have levees and they spill material and uh, the channels can be up to 200 metres plus deep incised into the seafloor plain so they're very, very thick but, but very diluted flows. It'll be pretty soupy down there, though. It's soupy now. It's soupy now. We know that because our multi-cores collect the actual water column and the sediment bottom, and they have a, a, a plug that gets uh, squeezed shut before it comes back up. 
So when it comes back up on deck, you've actually got this much water, well, it's variable, but you've got the muddy water, which is actually what's in place now with the, sea, the sediment, and we experienced that the, the last event, you, over days of time, the multi-cores, you could see the, literally see the little particles sort of starting to compress down and making, making the next turbidite on the seafloor in the process of watching it over, over a period of days. So it was really interesting to be able to do that. So what impact has this mighty underwater avalanche had on deep sea life in the canyon? Let's sit down with marine biologists Daniel LeDuc David Bowden and Ashley Roden, who have all been involved in studies showing that the sediments on the canyon floor are remarkably rich. 2006, we visited the canyon to try and get a handle on what deep-sea organisms uh, lived there. Um, particularly, we were interested in the time on whether or not there was organic material entering the canyon which could support um, the organisms that, that lived in the deep sediments. Um, what we found, somewhat to our surprise, was a very rich community of organisms, very high biomasses of, of animals, primarily dominated by an echiurin, a type of worm-like creature, uh, a polychaete worm, and also a sea cucumber. And it appeared that those that very rich um, community was being supported by organic material that entered into the canyon from the heads, but also potentially from um, organic material which was supplied by uh, potentially upwelling and downwelling within the uh, canyon system. So it was a very rich, super rich um, site, and we published um, the results of that study. And in that study we're claiming, in fact, it's one of the hot spots of biodiversity in the deep sea, uh, one of the highest that's actually known. So it's a particularly special place for deep sea organisms. Now, Daniel, you're a nematode man. I've had you on the program before. Right, so yeah. is the Kaikoura Canyon also significant in terms of the nematodes there? Well, yes, uh, following that initial study where the, these huge amounts of, of biomass was, were found in uh, the, the canyon, we had available to us a few samples for uh, looking at the nematodes. I analysed those samples and, and found that the communities, that the type of species that you find there, are quite different from what you find in similar habitats nearby but outside the canyon. So that means from, from that point of view that it's a special place because the species are very different and that leads to the question as to why uh, the species are, are so different. And that's probably, we sort of hypothesise that it has, has to do with the huge amounts of uh, organic matter that enter the canyon. And it could also be uh, quite likely that there's a, a lot of disturbance going on uh, from things like... Um, Earthquakes, turbidites, creating turbidites, which are these mass movements of sediment down the canyon. So that's, that creates a huge amounts of physical disturbance. And so the animals that live down there have to be able to cope with it. And so the, the normal fauna, so to speak, that you find on the, the margins uh, don't really do so well. So that's why we, we get a different set of species down in the canyon. So that makes it a speci special place uh, because of these special environmental conditions. It does seem like a particularly rigorous environment for something to have to live in. Yeah, yeah. well, looking at which species or which taxa, which types of nematodes you find there, they're, they're quite atypical. They're not normal, the normal kinds of nematodes that you find in the deep sea. They're a lot more similar to the nematodes you find in the shallow areas, say in estuaries uh, or maybe the continental shelf, where there's a lot more food, there's a lot more disturbance just naturally. That tells us that conditions are challenging, that coupled with the low diversity.
So the big thing is a big biomass but not a great species diversity. In some instances, and perhaps in some faunal groups, the species diversity might be low, but certainly the biomass is very high. And it's possible that diversity overall might be low um, because when you do have a potentially disturbed environment, either because you're having a lot of organic material coming in or because the slopes are unstable over time, then relatively few organisms could adapt to those conditions and therefore you have a low species number. But those which do adapt to that environment can do very, very well and then their numbers go up and therefore the biomass goes up. So what might have happened a couple of weeks ago in the Kaikoura earthquake? We we know that there was a massive turbidity flow. They picked it up... 300 kilometres away and it was still flowing. So what do you think has happened to that environment? Well, it seems like they will have changed. Uh, And the thing that uh, I personally find intriguing there is that although we talk about the canyon as being a high-energy canyon, whereas um, Daniel's been saying there's a lot of turbidite flows down through the canyon, it's quite a unique shape, form, the morphology of it. So you have the main canyon axis, which is steep-sided and has um, turbidity currents running down it that we know about. But where we found the very high biomass is often a, a, like a side lobe of the canyon towards the head of the canyon. Uh, and that is, um, as we sampled it back in 2006, a depositional environment. So there's a, there's a lot of organic material is settling to the seabed there, and that's where we're finding these very high biomasses of the, um, the sea cucumbers and the Echurian worms and the, um, the little uh, bathy siphon foraminiferans on the surface there. So... It's uh, quite possible, if we're going to speculate about this, that if there's been uplift of the seabed there, then that um, that depositional environment will have changed. Something will have changed there, which will affect the oceanography, the flows and the currents there. Uh, And if we no longer get the um, deposition of material in that um, little side lobe to the canyon, then there's going to be a difference in the community. It'll turn more to, if you like, a conventional high-energy canyon. I think the other thing which is going to be interesting, you're obviously going to get um, some actual physical slippage of the of the material, the slope, so it's like an underwater landslide, if you like. And so you will potentially get burial of organisms which live. They'll be suffocated, if you like, by having more sediment piled on top of them, and they'll die. So in the after the big uh, earthquake in Japan in 2011, which also released a lot of um, sediment, um, both the size of the, the trench but also uh, as a turbid um, flow, and they observed many dead animals when they went and looked um, a couple of months after that particular earthquake. So that's what we'd sort of expect in Kaikoura as well. If you've got a lot of sediment movement, a lot of those underwater landslides, then the chances are a lot of animals are going to actually be buried and die, and you might see their carcasses on the, on the seafloor. And that means that um, you're going to change, definitely you're going to change the community structure there, and how long it would take to recover from that mass uh, disturbance um, would be something which would be very interesting to find out. Any idea how nematodes recolonize? Well, looking at uh, some of the cores that were taken there and seeing that turbidite layer on top of that sort of fluffy, recently deposited layer made me think that there's probably a lot of nematodes going down the canyon with turbidite and recolonizing it as the, the sediment moves down. So there's probably a whole community getting buried, but a whole fresh new community on top that's arrived from somewhere else and doing just fine. Uh, well, for the moment being, uh, anyway, um, whether they survive for long periods is, is, a, is, a, is another question. But um, colonization, because it's so small, they can travel long distances relatively easily in the, in the right conditions.
There's certainly going to be a lot of change, so physically but also chemically. So the, you're going to change the the organic carbon content of the of the sediment as you get changes in the amount of material that gets deposited and where it gets deposited. So organisms have got to respond to that as well, that change in their in their depositional environment, as Dave said, and the what the content of that uh, those depos- deposited sediments. So you've got those massive physical changes, and then you've got ongoing chemical changes within the sediment, which the organisms have got to respond to as well. Just, just thinking about that, it's maybe quite interesting that the the big biomass that we found were the, the large, strong burrowing animals. Mm. So these are the, you know, the um, was it Maparia musculus, the... the um, sea cucumber. You're uh, holding and, your hand a few these, centimetres apart. I, I am <laughs> indeed. They're, they're big. But also the echurians. The echurians are glorious. They're great big, green, bright green things, but very strong, muscular, burrowing animals. So maybe that's a sign that this kind of thing has happened before. So they get a dump of sediment on top of them, and they're, uh, they're the ones that are capable of um, working their way back up to the surface. I guess that would depend upon how much material has been deposited. So if it's many, many centimetres, they might not be able to reposition, mm-hmm. as Dave suggested. But if it's, if it's less than that, they might be able to reposition and, you know, and their recovery might be much quicker than we might expect. So there's a lot of possibilities uh, which we would like to investigate and, and to see what the potential trajectory of the, organ, of the animal community is to those changes which the earthquake might have brought about. Yeah, so that's one of the things is that... Is that we go back there now, it's going to be very disturbed. There's going to be a lot of suspended sediment, I would guess, still. So maybe if we get back there any time, we're going to be able to see whether this has changed the, uh, the regime of the canyon significantly or not. Yeah, that, the mention of suspended sediments and another way in which uh, other animals which might be more distant might be affected. So if you have um, suspended particles in the, in the water and they get transported around, they could impact um, the feeding abilities of other animals elsewhere. So, for instance, you might have higher up on the more stable components of the canyon walls where you might have some rock formations and you might have corals attached. Uh, and they might not be necessary, those rock walls might be intact and not have moved, but the corals could potentially be impacted by the suspended sediment. It might interfere with their feeding abilities. And you, you can probably take that further up the food chain as well, as in we, in our 2006 voyage, when we um, summarised that, we were uh, making a link between the number of benthic feeding fish, mm-hmm. so the rat tails, uh, primarily that are coming in there, and we're assuming that they're feeding on the the benthos, you know, the, uh, the the high biomass of benthos that we're seeing there. So if that benthic system is disturbed, it's quite possible that you get a knock-on system up through it. So whether you go up as far as the sperm whales or not, it's speculation. But temporary, maybe the effects of it, but we don't know. If it's made a major change to the um, the oceanographic, the dynamics of the system, then. It could have a longer-lasting effect. Yeah, so that's the way in which, obviously, everything in the sea and in life, of course, is interconnected. And so it's these knock-on effects and how they might affect from one group of animals to the other. Um, that's also interesting um, to have a look at. Um, we ourselves might be focused on deep-sea organisms of a particular type, but um, we've got to remember that it's part of a whole ecosystem. And the ecosystem-wide effects in Kaikoura Canyon could be quite large, in fact. And that's um, something perhaps Daniel can talk a little bit more about the, the sustainable sea study that we've got mm. um, because that specifically is looking at those um, connections between different components of the fauna. Well, you, uh, you were talking about interconnectedness and that, yeah, that's very much what the Sustainable Seas Project that we are doing is about and it's about the connect- connection between 
the organic matter that goes into rivers and eventually into the ocean and potentially down the canyon. Um, so relationship between what, what happens on land and what happens in the deep sea. And that's not something we think about often because we tend to think of, the, of these two ecosystems as, as quite separate and independent and we, we don't generally think of the deep sea um, as much as we think as what happens on land. But um, there's good good... We're guessing that there's a lot of terrestrial organic matter that makes its way down the deep sea and that's channel being funneled down into the deep sea by the canyon and that might be part of the reason why there's so much life down there this is all this terrestrial organic matter represents a new food source on top of the marine primary production that would make make its way there uh, normally so that might be part of the picture so what i'd really like to do now is go and get some core samples and look at that turbidite layer that fresh layer that deposited there and look at the chemical tracers and then figure out is there a sign that there's um, terrestrial uh, organic matter uh, in it and if so then that would mean and then we, we could perhaps try and trace it into the animals and see how far up the food chain it goes. And a big thanks to Niwa marine biologists Daniel Leduc, David Bowden and Ashley Roden and to Niwa marine geologists Joshua Mountjoy and Philip Barnes. Thanks for listening to this Our Changing World podcast. Check out our webpage for photos and web features. rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Kia ora mai. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.